Play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. God. All right, guys. Selena's on vacation. She's like, guys, I have to go to work. They're sending me to Hawaii with Beyonce <laughs> and Jay-Z. I'm no, so but it's sorry. work. Yeah. No, okay. Just okay, just so we're being <laughs> accurate, Thursday I'm going to Barbados to cover with crop Rihanna? over R- Rihanna. Wait, wait. And I'm gonna be in the parade. I was joking. You no, really seriously, are? yes. <laughs> yes. This and I'm job. gonna wear I'm gonna wear uh, the little like you know those little costumes that they're in front of us. I have paid, no words. She gets paid human money to do this. <laughs> You know what I'm doing on Thursday? Possibly going to Albany. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing on Thursday going to court. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, lot. guys. Are you it's sure hard. you're not the one that got the promotion, Selena? <laughs> My goodness. So, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem, where we have a show where our leader, our fearless leader, goes to work in beautiful places while the rest of us stay in dreary, sometimes <laughs> humid New York City or New York State if we're going to Albany. But we're not here to talk about Selena, Selena living a good life, even though I would like to come with her. And I'm sure if I asked her, she would find a way to say no and very awkwardly. <laughs> There's a bigger thing to discuss today. So, in case you have not known, you weren't paying attention because, you know, I wasn't paying attention either. On July 26, 1948, Harry Truman, President of the United States, did something very interesting. He signed an executive order, Executive Order 9981 to be exact. I wonder what order they're up to now. Probably like 50,1670. But anyways, the order was to desegregate our U.S. military. And this is what it said. I hereby declare to be the policy of the president that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. Pretty amazing, right? Awesome stuff. So it was a great move. And you know what? It took a couple of years for that really to like sink in because the military wasn't truly desegregated until the, the Korean War in which they had to desegregate the segregated armies because people were dying so much they had to join forces. But it was the first big step. So now, on the 69th anniversary of this, see what I did there? On the 69th anniversary of this, the orange man, who looks like he came from the inside of a horse's nostrils, decided that he wanted to match this announcement. Allegedly. 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 Thank you very much. He wanted to match this announcement with something of his own. So, going on to the Twitter, where he has at least 50,000 fake Twitter followers, allegedly, Professor Hardin. He said that the government would no longer allow transgender people to serve in the U.S. military. This is a year after the Pentagon lifted its ban on transgender service members. And in a series of tweets, he says, after consultation with my generals and military experts, he's talking about HistoryChannel.com, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender and the military would entail. Thank you, lowercase p. So now, Donald Trump said this. He said he conferred with military experts and his own people in the military, but everyone was pretty much thrown off. They were completely blindsided by this. They had no idea this was happening. And if you ask, <laughs> if you ask the department, if you ask any Department of Defense, they're like, oh, well, defer to the president. Because they had no idea. They had no plans to stop allowing trans people into the U.S. military. And if we're being honest, there are between 4,000 to 15,000 transgender people in the U.S. military now. And over 150,000 trans people who have served in the military 
over a course of at least 50 years. So it's going to be pretty hard for Trump to do this. But it fits into the narrative of the Trump administration going after particular groups. We know he hates the blacks. We know he hates the women. Well, he definitely hates the women, unless your name is Ivanka Trump. He, we know that he especially said he was going... Name. Especially. <laughs> allegedly. 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 We also know that he has a special place for the LGBTQ community in his heart so much so that his attorney general jeff sessions is trying to remove them from the equal protection clause so now that he's attacking the trans community it is our chance to finally break down this piece right here particularly to the military what it means moving forward and how we can protect our good friends in the movement so now i want to jump straight to Alyssa actually because the, when i saw this the first person i thought of was actually not you Alyssa. it was chelsea manning because she had an editorial but like you you have been one of the people who has really educated me on, on like the trans movement, the struggles, like the ways to be supportive and just like how not to sound like an idiot when I'm talking about them. So I, I think it's important that we get your thoughts first on this. What was what did you think when you saw this? I mean, listen, I was not really surprised by the announcement at all. It sort of like should have been expected. But my for, first thought, actually, aside from being just very, you know, disappointed and upset and feeling like I wanted to, you know, fight even harder now and, you know, resist even more is sort of the hypocrisy of Donald Trump. We're talking about a two-time draft dodger who allegedly who used um, flat feet and some other BS to get out of actually going to Vietnam who basically is now going to denigrate people who want to serve um, because of their uh, gender and that to me is sort of just ridiculous because you know there are so few people that want to serve in the military these days. We have an all-volunteer military. Um, less than 10% of the people living in the country want to serve in the military. And if you actually do want to serve in the military, then we should not put roadblocks in the way because of something like your gender, especially when the amount of money it costs to provide transgender health care in the military is actually 10 times less than the amount of money it costs to provide Viagra to soldiers. Let me jump in on that one. I want to throw the next question to Jackie, actually. So, Donald Trump tried to make it seem that it was super expensive to provide services to trans people. He also alluded that all the trans people in the military are using the military to pay for their transition surgeries. Both things are false. It costs about 2.4 to 4.4 million dollars to provide services to trans soldiers. That's if they want to transition, which has not seemed to be a big thing. Out of the out of the 15,000 trans people that we have in the military now, about 250 of them are actually going through active transitions. You mean a medical transition. Thank you, thank you. so that people are clear. All these people are transitioning. Yes. They are all trans people and are transitioning. What you yes. mean is an actual medical yes. transition, which some trans people do not choose to go through and some trans people do. You see why I need Alyssa? Thank you, Alyssa. Yeah. So now the question for you, Jackie, is $4.4 million for people actually transitioning. Medically transitioning. Medically transitioning, thank you. $46 million for Viagra. Yet there's a huge issue in the military of sexual assault and rape, and that is not dealt with at all, right? Yet we're, like, prescribing Viagra. Like, I don't under... I. It must be so nice to be a man, and awesome. I will never know, it's and awesome. I wish I could cis know. Man. A cis man, especially a cis white man in America, I wish I could know. That would be... I'm a cis white man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Hey, Chet. Uh -huh. Nice, you nice can suit. identify as you Jet. choose, apparently, Stanley. Um, Watch your tone, woman. Yeah, but I mean, that, right, like that I don't understand. I mean, like at the end of the day, I think all should be included. And, you know, I don't want to discriminate against one group over the other. I think it's fine to need or want things like Viagra. But at the end of the day, there is this like um, 
the stigma against medically transitioning and there's a huge um, stigma against trans people in general. And so I think that we need to, as a country, do away with that. And this, like, as you mentioned, and you outlined the history of the United States military is sort of not in line with how, I guess, progressive, quote unquote, the military has been in integrating groups of people so this this doesn't seem very in line with the history of the, our military thank you jackie i don't know why people are buying so much viagra whiskey does the same job and for a lot cheaper so, <laughs> i think whiskey does the opposite well too much whiskey gives you the whiskey but anyways <laughs> selena i want to ask you about this because it's the 69th anniversary from the day that we desegregated the army and trump is doing this now do you think it was on purpose i mean the things that donald trump does day to day it baffles me It's mind boggling. And I think that it definitely causes us to question not only him as the leader of this country, but our country who voted him and elected him into this position. Intentional. I don't think that he was aware that decades ago on that same exact day, the army was desegregated so that black people could also serve um, in our military forces. I don't think he knew that. But I think that the thing that's so pressing is the fact that People are using, uh, they're discriminating against people, Americans who want to serve, as Alyssa mentioned. But also, I think that we also need to pay attention to the fact that they, even though that they want to serve, not all of them are even trying to uh, go under undergo the medical surgery. So, and I think that it's such a small fraction in like the, the entire budget of the military, like Trump's budget just... Uh, denigrated how much more how many more millions of dollars towards the military so i mean we have uh more than enough we have a surplus when it comes to funding the military and i think that if you have americans willing to serve we should be able to meet their needs right i don't think that trump was really thinking oh i'm going to make this like huge symbolic gesture to like a big f you to this group of people on this day right i think that he was just hearing oh it costs x millions of dollars to provide trans people with these medical procedures if they want them they're not in the military anymore like they're fired right like that is like his line of thought it's not i i always like i'm amused at some of the like um commentary on the way that he makes decisions as if it's this nuanced process and you know he's looking at like what day historically can i like stick the middle finger up to america but i don't think that's how his mind works i think he's like super simplistic he heard that this number cost the military you know or the, um that trans people cost the military x number of dollars and he was like well screw them they're not in anymore because he has no nuance whatsoever and that is how he makes decisions so i mean listen here's the other thing about that which is that you know trans people have been serving in the military for a really really long time and i think people don't realize that e- that even before you had open trans service, um, which was part of the doing of the Obama administration, too. They actually did a comprehensive study before the military was open to open service. And what they found is that um, actually letting people serve openly helped unit cohesion. It did not hurt cohesion. It made people trust their fellow soldiers more because they knew more about them and they were you know privy to this information about them and when a person has to hide for so long that can make them not trust other people and of course in the military you want to be able to trust your fellow soldiers and so you want to be able to be open and honest about them you know another parallel where we see this was with don't ask don't tell um you know for for all of the 
good things that people said came out of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a horrible policy. Um, on one hand, yes, it allowed people to serve uh, uh, in the military that may have otherwise not been able to serve because they were gay. But on the other hand, it literally made people hide in the closet. It made them hide things from their fellow soldiers, and it didn't help to build trust or unit cohesion. And actually what they found when they repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, is that the unit cohesion got better. So, you know, there's not just the monetary aspect of it. Obviously, we discussed the monetary aspect of it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of this whole idea that it's going to cost a lot of money is really, you know, not the truth. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's also this issue of the unit cohesion. He wants us to be focused on fighting wars. And, you know, he wants us to be focused on beating the enemy, or at least he said in his tweets, um, that can't happen if you don't have soldiers that trust each other. Um, so, you know, it's important that we remember there that this is not really a new issue, that the trans community has made a lot of contributions to the military. Um, and, you know, that the other thing is Donald Trump's tweets are not a policy. Even the DOD came right out and was like, yeah, these people aren't fired right away. We need to have some actual guidance. This just goes back to the incompetency of Trump and the Trump White House. Thank you very much. So, guys, we're going to go on a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening next since a tweet is actually not policy, what it means for the trans community. And then also, I have an interesting topic I'm going to talk to you guys about, just the concept of war. And I know a lot of us over here tend to be, like, not so into war. So if that's the case, why are we fighting so hard for people to have the opportunity to go to war? This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, maybe a little, baby. I don't want to lie. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, we are talking about Donald, the orange man, Trump's ban on transgender people in the U.S. military. Or is it even a ban? If you want to call in with a question, a comment, but no curse words, give us a call at 212-650-7404. That's right. The number has changed for the time being. It is 212-650-7404. And when we walked away from this to go on a break, and listen to the future tell us about the drought. I told you when we came back, I would let Alyssa explain to you why this might not actually be a real ban. Alyssa, hit us with the facts. So, I mean, basically, the president tweeting something out does not actually make a policy. There are steps that a president has to take um, through the executive branch. Um, it's known as the rulemaking process. Uh, and so the president actually has to send formal policy memorandums and guidelines to the Department of Defense um, and to the branches of the military that then has to review them. And obviously the president is the commander in chief. So any orders that the president give in theory are orders, but they have to come in a formal way. And while Twitter may be the so-called president's way of communicating with the rest of us, and it may be an open forum, as I discussed last week when we were talking about whether or not Trump can block you on Twitter, so you should check that out if you haven't already. Um, that does not make Twitter a place where policies become the actual law. And so as soon as this happened, the Department of Defense and the branches of the military were like, oh, uh, wait, like these trans people that are currently serving in the military, you're not going to be fired right away. Um, but it does remain to be seen once the president does go through the official channels um, about what is going to happen. And I think the answer is we don't really know exactly what's going to happen, because as you pointed out, 
south. There's already between, you know, two and 10,000 or two and 15,000 people um, that are trans or that are gender non-binary currently serving in the military. And the reason why we don't know that exact number is because not everybody has gone through medical transition. Not everybody identifies specifically as trans. And so it's very hard to know exactly how many people we have. Um, But nonetheless, there then becomes this question of what's going to happen to all those people? Are they just going to get fired? Um, I think the answer is there's going to probably be lawsuits to try and keep them into the military, which sort of leads into your next point, Stanley, about, you know, we don't really want to fight wars, but why are we fighting for people that are trans to be in the military? Yeah, and before we get there, I do want to point out that there's actually a larger representation of trans people in the military than there is in, like, regular society. Like, like, like 21% of trans people are in the military. That's a pretty big number. So, you know, this move by Trump is not only ignorant, it's also attacking a pretty loyal group to the military-industrial complex. But I want to get to Jackie, since we're talking about the military-industrial complex. I don't want to go to war. I don't think anyone in this room does. We're not interested in bombing countries or being violent and using weapons of mass destruction against other people. So why are we then fighting for people to have the opportunity to engage in a military complex? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation, especially to be having in this room full of pacifists, right? I think that all four of us are not in favor of war. Amazing and pacifists. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is an interesting conversation, and it reminds me of this week I was at an event um, with disability advocates talking about making the subway system more inclusive. And, you know, the it came up that, but the subway sucks, right? Like, why do you want to make this system more inclusive and more accessible when it's terrible? And one of the activists speaking said that um, she remembered when closed captioning was first implemented on TV, right? Um, and somebody argued like, oh, but everything on TV is garbage. Like, why do you want to, you know, why do you want to watch it? And the argument back was because I want to watch the same garbage that everybody else is watching. Right. I yeah. want to have the same rights as an American that every other American has. And so that means being able to enlist in the military regardless of gender. And so that is important to me, too. While I I am not, you know, I consider myself a pacifist and I am not looking for people to go to war and, you know, quite the contrary, I do believe that people should have the same rights as one another in this country. But so now like, this seems like a move that the religious right would really want. Now, Selena, you are not from the religious right. No, do you represent that? But you, you you're not. But you are. Just kidding. But you are beyond my right, actually. Oh, but, yeah, um, I'm with Stanley's right, so that counts for something. And you're religious. Hmm. <laughs> so, where is it? Why is there so much energy from religious communities about trans people, and how did it get focused to the military? I think it's fear and ignorance. Um, I, I think it really boils down to that. I can't really sum it up in any other way. The fact that there are legislators in Congress who are fighting so actively to save like $2.4 million of the military budget, which equates to like 0.1%. I mean, it's, it's just so it's almost like a waste of time. Not even that large. Right, right. It, it's almost like a waste of time. And I think it just boils down to fear and ignorance. And I think that um, with Donald Trump, the reason why he tweeted that out so abruptly, I feel like he might be trying to, like, work out a deal in in Congress, like, more than likely because he wants to, you know, he has a quote-unquote agenda. He's trying to pass health care, and it looks like what he's trying to do is recruit more people from the far right mm-hmm. to um, help push his agenda through Congress. So that's the reason why he tweeted that out so abruptly. And the reason why I say I, I'm theorizing this is because I read, like, a, a piece on political that was saying something like that, so yeah. it might just be like the reasoning behind it but i don't even think donald trump 
knows and cares enough about the military to even understand the contributions that trans Americans are making. I think it's something larger at hand and he's just speaking. He's just rallying up the part of his base that is ignorant very uneducated, especially around LGBTQ issues. And he's using these weird uh, words as a fear mechanism to push his agenda. So I don't think anyone in here believes that Donald Trump knows how to do anything besides tweet and possibly do cocaine, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Big allegedly. But he does have someone who is allegedly deep inside the closet and has an alleged deep love for men, so much so that he hates himself and hates other gay people for it. And that person is Mike Pence. That's alleged, right? Yes, that's alleged. I'm like, did he say that? (laughs) Yes. And we also know that this... No, he did not say that. We also know that this vice president calls his wife mom. So he's already someone who's not... No, he calls her mother. That is mother. Even, that is not alleged. That, that is, is that is on the record. Mother. That is disgusting. Not allegedly. Just straight up <laughs> disgusting. But the point that I'm trying to get to is that we had this aggressive homophobe weird guy who's the vice president who was pushing things like this when he was in Indiana, the governor of Indiana. How much of this do you think is being influenced by that creepy person and the, getting the love of the religious right back because Donald Trump has gone underwater with many of his supporters, Alyssa? Right. No, I think that's a good point. I um I think that it does have something to do with it. Um, I mean, just a few points here. Number one, I do think that it has to do with trying to rile up his base. This has been a thing that the Family Research Council and Tony Perkins, um, who is a member of the religious right, has been pushing for a long time. And in fact, when Donald Trump came out and made this announcement, he immediately got praised from people on the far right, especially the religious right. His poll numbers are dropping so low right now. They are like below 38 percent, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's really trying to do anything to get his poll numbers to come back up or to appease uh, the type of people that he thinks that he can appease um, on the on the right and especially within the religious community. So that isn't a shocker. Um, number two, uh, just on the military industrial complex thing. Yeah, that's something I saw a lot, especially in my circles. Um, of LGBT people and specifically of um, people that I know that are trans or non-binary, um, they a lot of them came out saying, you know, I feel really torn right now. On one hand, I absolutely support trans people's ability to be in the military and I want them to be able to serve if that's what they in fact decide they want to do. On the other hand, I am absolutely against the military industrial complex and I feel like, um, you know, it's a weird position to put me in to kind of have to fight for the rights of, of these people to be soldiers. Um, but I think that goes back back to, you know, like the F. Scott Fitzgerald thing. The test of a first-rate intelligence is to be able to keep these two opposed ideas in mind. Um, and what Jackie said, you know, that we want to have full equality even if we don't believe we should send people to war. Um, and as for Selena's comment, yeah, I agree with that too. I do think that this was a way to distract people uh, from the healthcare debate that was going on. So I think there's a lot there. And I think at the end of the day, this, is, this isn't this is just banning trans people from the military. This is government-sanctioned discrimination, right? And at the end of the day, like, what are we fighting for, right? Why do we have a military? What are we looking to protect? Um, and it's our freedom as Americans. And, um, you know, in theory, right, obviously not in practice, but um, this is not something, you know, this is coming from the top down. This is like a top down decision barring trans people from, from, um, from the military, and it's just government sanction. And how else is this going to manifest, right? Go ahead, go ahead. You know, you know what I find very interesting about this whole process? So we know that, like you mentioned earlier, Jackie, that sexual assaults are still a serious problem in the military. We also know that trans women, particularly trans women of color, have been like consistent victims of sexual assault and sexual violence. Actually, earlier today, the 14th trans person 
for the month was murdered. Oh my god. Was murdered and like so so we know this is a very clear problem. If Trump is really about making America great again, why isn't he going after issues like that, Selena? I I mean because his base falls on the exact opposite side of that spectrum. I mean, they don't care about LGBTQ issues, particularly uh, trans when it comes to trans people of color. Like those are the most marginalized Americans in our society right now, a trans person, a trans woman of color. So if you think about it, he's focused on his votes his his um the his tally like his right like his poll numbers right now and getting reelected and passing his agenda trans people of color aren't voting for him why should he care so here's my question I have for a listen now and we're running out of time so I really want to ask her this I'm tired of having a conversation of oh these are just people we disagree with when can we finally start calling these people what they are horrible human beings who don't deserve oxygen to speak about these things um, I mean, I don't know if that's a fair question to ask me because, I mean, you can, anytime you want, you have the freedom of speech. You can call these people horrible people all you want. Um, well, why are they getting a platform? Like, why do we keep consistently uplifting these ignorant people? Well, why are they getting a platform? They're getting a platform because they can get the votes because their people turn out and the Democrats don't. And that's a political conversation that we have to have about how the Democrats can do better in turning out voters. At the end of the day, Donald Trump won, um, you know, and, and yes, there was possibly Russian interference as we went into. And yes, there's other factors at play. But Donald Trump won the Electoral College so and they the won, won. They won the Senate and they've won lots and lots of governorships and they run a lot of state houses. So, you know, there are a lot of political issues that we can talk about, about why they're in power and what we can do to get them out of power. But at the end of the day, they're in position of power. They get to make the policy. And if we don't like it, then we have to go out and vote. And if we care about the rights of trans people, then we have to get out there and let our voices be heard and say we support these people as allies we're going to vote for people that are going to make sure that they are protected and not discriminated against by the government it's amazing because pretty much what Alyssa said and maybe she didn't mean to say this is that racism xenophobia transphobia homophobia won the day because that's what people want to go vote for and it's really it's really just kind of depressing if you think about it that people's hatred and discomfort with other people brought them out here to vote that that's what it is because they're so obsessed with people's body parts, they're so obsessed with people's color that they had to go out there and try to, to take away people's rights. So the question that I have for you, because I don't want us to walk away on this sad note, Jackie, is how do we protect our people that so many, that, that what, a huge group of Americans came out and said they were tied up. How do we protect those people? I mean, I think that we be as vocal as possible. Like Alyssa said, we get out and vote. We call our representatives. We just, like, make it known where we stand on this issue more than ever, right? Because I think being silent here is being complicit in this wrongdoing. And so I think it's more important than ever when we see a group of people be discriminated against by our government and by our president that we speak out and say this is not acceptable and I'm going to withdraw my support from you you know if we see it happening in businesses we withdraw our support or from you know uh, music artists that are doing things that are messed up right like we talked about last week a little bit um, we withdraw our dollars and we lend our support and our voices to the things that matter Absolutely. And I would just piggyback and say that, like, as a cis woman of color, I would just ask, is there anything else, Alyssa, that I could do to be an ally? Like, you know, 
protesting, voting, talking about it on social media, those are things I have direct access to. Is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing in being an ally to the trans and uh, gender non-binary community is one, know what you're talking about, like in terms of the terms that you use. Like, for example, like it's not transgendered, right? It's an adjective. It's transgender. The other thing is like understand sort of the information about transgender people um, and the difference between gender and sexuality um, and be educated in yourself in a way that you can explain it to other people because the way that we're really going to reach people and change minds is through personal stories and experiences coming at people um, and just giving them facts and stats and numbers about the cost of healthcare and this and that like that's not going to convince people that's not going to change people's minds what's going to change people's minds is when you come to somebody and you explain what it is to be transgender when you can break it down and make it less scary right because at the end of the day this is about fear fear of the unknown fear of what people think is different um, you know fear of something that may contradict a religious belief or religious practice that somebody have. But when you start to break it down and explain that trans people and gender nonconforming people are human beings that, you know, at the end of the day, everybody bleeds the same red blood. Um, that's when you start to really get through to people, you know, especially and when you can have if you have friends that are trans and, you know, if you can basically to have conversations about with them directly about what it is that they specifically think that you can do to help um, to promote, you know, their stories and to educate other people. That's what I think is really going to make the change, because ignorance um, leads to hatred. And if we can combat ignorance through education, then I think we can have the biggest impact uh, in this area. Alyssa, I think you said it all right there. I don't really want to beat up a dead horse because you closed it out. So, guys, thank you for listening to this conversation. Remember, Donald Trump is not normal. Neither are the people that voted for him. They're full of hate. We don't have to be. We're going on a quick break. When we come back, it'll be the news roundup. And we'll be talking about a lot of things, including my favorite topic, the mother-loving mooch. You know I do magic, quiver who did it, I touch the pack and get it missing. Pipe it up, pipe it up, pipe it up, pipe it up, pipe it up. Dab, 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 dab. The MCA Are you don't work. like a seizure over there, Stanley? I am not having a seizure <laughs> this time. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. This is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohn, and of course our intern, Kuda. Selena had to go on a workation to South Africa, so she's not here right now. Oh, um, hey, Selena. Hey, guys. How was your workation? My work, I was in Detroit, and I can I just say what really happened because I heard last week's show where you guys were like, so I heard everything you guys said, okay? Allegedly. Right, well, allegedly. I was, so last week I was in Detroit. Allegedly. I saw the movie Detroit. It is about the 1967 Detroit riots that. Where did the riots take place? In Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> she had to think about that. <laughs> That's how you know she was in Aruba because she had Stop to it. right. No, I didn't. Uh, so Selena. I just want to say this movie is so powerful. It comes out in all theaters August 4th. Selena told me I can't watch it. No, Stanley, I do know. not watch this movie. It is so powerful that Stanley should not watch the movie because the scenes of police brutality are so intense that I don't trust Stanley can handle it for good reasoning. What do you think I'm going to do? Clap back at somebody. I, I like the police. Now. Exactly, and that's oh, why I don't want like to force that. I wouldn't do anything violent. I don't. I don't know what you would do, Stanley. Yes, you do. You know me for like ten years now. The, the, you haven't. Have you watched the Eric Gardner video? I will never. Have watch you that watched video. Philando Castillo? I will never watch that. That video. movie is ten times as intense as those videos. Oh my god! Don't watch it. But anyway, everyone else, if you are woke, but you can take a breather inside and out, maybe you practice yoga, maybe you do something that will keep you calm. Please go out and watch the yeah. movie. Alyssa and I are too Detroit. black to watch this movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so, guys, welcome back to Let Your Voice Be Heard. This is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and Jackie Cohen. We just finished a conversation about Donald Trump's attack on trans people in the U.S. military. And before we jump into the news roundup, your favorite segment of the show, where we talk about cool things that make you laugh, cry, curse, or even pipe it up, I want Alyssa to get a chance to make one more comment from the previous conversation. Well, you know, no, actually, I mean, I'll loop this comment into a news story. So we um, also got an announcement this week uh, that the Department of Justice intervened in a lawsuit um, here in New York. And the lawsuit actually is being brought by an attorney who I happen to know. Um, And uh, this lawsuit is about a man who was fired from his skydiving uh, company for being gay. Apparently, a woman who came for a skydiving lesson, uh, he told her that he was gay. And he actually told her so that she would not be freaked out about the fact that she was going to be strapped to him as they jumped out of a plane. Um, And she got very uncomfortable about it and made a complaint. And after she made a complaint, he got fired. Um, And so the DOJ actually intervened into that lawsuit. And they argued this week that sexual orientation is not protected by the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And therefore, um, this person cannot bring a lawsuit for being fired for being gay uh, because the law doesn't protect this person. Um, So, you know, this is just another thing that the Trump administration is doing that is an attack on LGBTQ people. Um, And, you know, the comment that I really wanted to make in the last, uh, you know, segment that um, I didn't get to make, but it fits aptly here, which is, you know, these trans soldiers um, and these LGBT soldiers also they are literally fighting wars overseas to protect American freedom, right? You have all these people that praise and prop up the military, and especially conservatives on the right that praise and pop up the military and love the military um, because they are supposedly fighting for our freedoms, uh, and yet they don't respect the very people that are fighting for our freedoms. And one of those freedoms is the freedom to be who you are. And being who you are may mean being gay or being trans. So we also should not lose sight of that when we talk about this conversation about the Trump administration's assault on trans troops and also on sexual orientation and the protection um, of LGBTQ people from not being fired for being LGBTQ. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Alyssa. And speaking of Donald Trump and the Republican Party's attacks on people, they continue their attack on the American health care system this week. And this week was probably the wildest experience I've ever had in watching <laughs> our representatives work for us or allegedly work for us. <laughs> so just I, I wanted to make sure I gave you guys just a rundown of what happened with health care. As we speak, the Republican health care plan is dead. There are rumors that they're trying to bring it back up again. On Monday, they were they started a voterama, which is pretty much where you can throw in a whole bunch of amendments and people had to vote on them very quickly. And the goal was it the goal for that was to let people vote on a straight up repeal. Then there was a partial repeal. And then there was the actual Better Relief Care Act, which is what the Senate Republicans came up with. And then finally, they would vote on a skinny repeal, which would eliminate the um, the um, the mandate and then eliminate a couple of the, t- the tax increases on, on millionaires and billionaires. That's what they were voting on. John McCain, so what started off with that, right? They, John McCain came in at the Voterama. They had to decide whether it was going to have a chance to be debated. They needed 51 votes. People weren't sure if John McCain was going to do it. John McCain came to D.C. after being diagnosed with brain cancer the week before and voted to let them debate on there. Then he gave a speech about how we should not be supporting bad legislation and voting on things just to be on party lines after he did just that thing. 
And then the next day there was a huge debate because Republicans had this skinny repeal, but it was so bad they said it would mess up the system more than it would help it. So they said they wanted to vote on the bill, but only if congressional Republicans did not vote for it and did not make it a law. You are not hearing me incorrectly. They wanted to pass the bill, but only if congressional Republicans would not vote for it. And Paul Ryan... Sometimes I got to stop myself before I get it suspended. Paul Ryan, the the House Speaker, would not promise that. He would not guarantee it. Actually, they enacted martial law, which is pretty much gives them the ability to vote on anything without any notice. And that made Senate Republicans nervous because they knew that if they voted for this bill and then it went to the House and the House voted for this bill, it would become law and t- throw our health insurance system into a, into a spiral, one-sixth of our economy into a spiral. What's your question, Selena? Yeah, so it was a debacle, to say the least. It was almost hard to follow because it was so, like, hypocritical. Like, at one point, Lindsey Graham called the skinny repeal a fraud, and he, like, lambasted it, and then he actually voted for it. And the only reason the skinny repeal was not pushed forward is because John McCain, out of nowhere, voted against it. Yeah, so... So I was just like, what I still don't understand why Lindsey Graham, like criticized the mess out of this bill and then voted for it. So just to wrap it up so we can get to everyone else. I'm sorry. Their goal was, so just to vote on it so they can say he voted on something, but then since Congress wouldn't tell them whether they let it die or not, Lindsey Graham had a press conference with John McCain and Rob Johnson to say how bad the bill was, but he was still going to vote for it, but the bill is bad. And then (laughs) they waited until about 1 in the morning to vote on it so they wouldn't get caught, and no one knew where John McCain was going to go. So for about 45 minutes on Twitter... Everyone was pretty much tweeting about body language, where Mike Pence came and he talked to John McCain, and everyone else came and talked to John McCain. Then finally, John McCain, in the most dramatic fashion I've ever seen for old white people. The rattlesnake. (laughs) Yes, John McCain, the rattlesnake, straddled over to the center of the room and put a thumbs down and said no. And now everyone's giving John McCain props because he voted no. But let me tell you, Susan Collins and and Lisa Murkowski were not supporting that bill at all, ever. Jackie? Yeah, right. No, but John McCain is the hero of the bill because he had because drama because people love drama. Right. And how dramatic is that that he came to D.C. after being diagnosed with brain cancer and, you know, hedged and didn't tell anybody what he was going to do. And then voted no. And that's why he's a hero. And also he's, you know, a white man, I guess. Yeah, and patriarchy. He also, he also <laughs> got a lot of high-quality health care himself after being diagnosed with brain cancer. Government-funded high-quality health care. Right. Absolutely. So it would have been even more hypocritical for him to pass a bill that would sabotage the health care law of the land currently, even though that is what Donald Trump and his administration is trying to do and are actively doing at this moment. They are sabotaging Obamacare so that it will, and I quote him, implode and then after it fails a lot of americans and more people die then they're going to try to pass health care reform again this is what happened john mccain took a newborn baby and put a gun to that baby's head people said oh no don't do it and then he said you know what i'm gonna pull the trigger he took the safety off we said oh no don't do it and then he moved the gun away and we're like oh my god he's a hero (laughs) meanwhile susan collins and lisa murkowski were getting threatened Donald Trump personally called Lisa Murkowski and threatened to strip out a third of Alaska's economic funding, and they still held firm. Alyssa? Yeah, no, I mean, here's the crazy thing about it, is they were literally saying, like, we will pass this bill as long as we get an insurance that the House won't pass the bill. We're like, wait, what? Like, do they not realize how a bill becomes a law over here? Like, if they pass the bill, then the House could just decide, hey, you know, we don't actually want a conference. It doesn't matter how many assurances they get from Paul Ryan. Like, at the 
the end of the day, if they would have passed this bill, then the House could have passed this bill and sent it to the president's desk. That's how these things work. Um, you know, saying that we're going to pass a law, but only if you give us an assurance that you're going to not pass the law, it's just crazy. Like, that's exactly how Congress is not going to work. And even John McCain said that he wanted to, you know, make things sort of go back on track to become a little more functional. But at the end of the day, the the basically the issue is that for seven years, Republicans have been saying that they are going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, they finally are in control. They, they run every single branch of government, and they can't get it done. And the reason why they can't get it done is because their own internal, ex, you know, internal fighting between the two factions within their party. On one hand, the moderates who say they're never going to support a super right-wing bill, and on the other hand, the right-wingers who say they're never going to support a moderate bill. And so as long as they keep going back and forth and back and forth, they're going to keep swapping off votes. You know, you move the bill further to the right, you're going to lose the moderates. You move the bill further to the left, you're going to use the pe- move the pe- lose the people on the right. Like, I don't know if they're ever going to have the votes, but we have to keep our eye on the ball because at the end of the day, as we've seen, every time we think they're not going to have the votes, they come really close. And so we have to keep resisting and keep paying attention to this issue. Selena? I have a closing question because I know we do have to wrap up the news roundup. Uh, but we do because we have, and then guys keep listening because we do have a Dreamer and Doer uh, coming up later on in the show. But the question I have is, even though Donald Trump has been tweeting and said, just let Obamacare implode, um, because more, like I mentioned, more than likely after it keeps failing people, they're going to try this health care reform bill again to get it passed. But... Optimistically speaking, is there also a chance that we can use this as a opportunity to promote single payer? Like that's what Bernie Sanders was talking about. He was like, well, you know what? If it does fail, Democrats, progressives, people on the left, we can rally around actually passing something that's even more beneficial for the American people. I mean, I don't work out like that. I don't see single payer happening under this administration ever. But that being said, I mean, I think that this is something this is like this debate is so critical to like our identity as Americans right now. Like this is something we've been talking about for a decade. Right. Um, And I think that to, you know, whereas people a while ago were like, no, we can't have single payer. That's not, you know, that's not an option to start to change the the um, culture of our society towards thinking about single payer as a realistic option. I think that we can start setting, you know, like setting those uh, boundaries and, you know, I don't know, putting those roots in the ground and get people thinking about it now so that when we do have a Democrat back in office and a Democratic administration, it'll be much easier to to implement. Alyssa, close this out. Totally. I mean, last but not least, um, before we go, this week on White House Survivor Edition, we oh, took another <laughs> we took another casualty <laughs> in Reince Priebus was forced out. Um, so keep staying tuned, and we'll see who gets forced off the island next week. Uh, I'm predicting Jeff Sessions. She's predicting Jeff Sessions. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be asking, is this racist? Everything I hear is my instinct, and if you think I say, and it's in a fight, I never hear that I didn't end up Never seen a season in my whole life. Everything is seated, everything is spotted. In the center side, in the center card, in the center seeking, in the center freaking. Everything I see, no red, no everything I take. Boom shakalaka, boom shakalaka. Boom shakalaka, boom shakalaka. Everything in shaka, everything in fucker. Everything in shaka. Shaka laka, boom, shaka laka. I don't see no ceilings. I don't see no ceilings. <laughs>
Bow. Oh my goodness. That was Blue Ivy Carter's freestyle. Do not disrespect Hold on. Blue Ivy. You were quoting Blue Ivy Carter? Yes, I just played her song while you walked away. I played it specifically for you. Thank you. And you walked away. Did you guys see the video of her dancing? Like, Blue Ivy Carter is little Beyonce. Like, she has a full viral video of her dancing. You know She's how like that the video best came thing. Oh, right? song got hacked. Oh. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> I haven't watched that video. I have respect for the queen. Oh, my but God. I guess some of us are not so respectful. Yeah, there's I, also a video of her drunk at in the white house with michelle obama <gasps> are they both drunk? I didn't, yes are they, can you send oh me God. that video that I will. are no. we being respectful i'm I res- sorry i respect the god barack jaquan hussein obama all right so i will not be looking that video oh by the way before we start i just want to say happy yes. early birthday to the only president that i recognize barack jaquan laquan <laughs> hussein shatisha obama my president is black my bicycle is blue i ride it down the highway you don't, you can see me too all right, thank you for what? that. Know. You you know, know Stanley likes to ramble sometimes. All right, so you know what, Stanley? You called Barack Obama, Jaquan, and Shatisha. That leaves me to ask, was that racist? But before you answer that question, <laughs> the New York Times recently published an essay titled, Was That Racist? Where people of color shared stories in which they encountered what they perceived to be racialized microaggressions. Now, microaggressions are indirect or subtle or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. We will talk about them a little bit more. But I want to get to this story because it was really, really good. And one story in particular actually went a little viral. But before we get get there, let me just tell you a little more about what this essay was about. So one person, one black writer, he was talking about a time where he and his black wife went to eat at a Latino restaurant. And what they were noticing was that they were not being served complimentary trips, chips. And when he had asked the waitress, uh, you know, can we get some chips? She was like, we don't have any more. And literally while she was saying that, he saw another server bring out chips to every other patron in the restaurant. And he noticed that all the other patrons, all the other patrons were Latino themselves and Hispanic. So and then he said it got really weird. It got really uncomfortable. And by the end of the night, he presumed that because they were probably running low on chips, they made a decision to only serve their Hispanic speaking um, their Hispanic uh, customers first and to basically preference them rather than him and his black wife. Lo and behold, was that racist? Then there was another story about how this woman received an email uh, that greeted her with the term "Hello, black." So she responded. <laughs> To the people that sent her this email and was like, it was from like a a job recruiting site. And she was like, do you always try to recruit employees by like referencing them by their skin color? And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. That was a technical error. And she was like, no, 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 no. I'm a techie. So she digged and digged and digged. And she discovered that they actually categorized their potential employees based on race and what happened was the email instead of addressing her by name it like skipped that section and addressed her by race because they categorized her as black hello Nick, uh, black person literally so and she basically after that happened she started questioning so do you guys hire based on a quota system are you trying to fill a a quota based on uh, your diversity or the lack thereof or is this about my skills was that racist last but not least there was another story this is the story that got a lot of people talking a uh, new york times reporter his name is greg howard he is black and he talks about how he loves white women 
He calls them his mother, his sister, his lovers. He literally puts this in the article about how he loves white women. But whenever he's walking down the street, white women who he does not know never acknowledge him. In fact, they look past him. They look through him and they never give him ample space to walk on the sidewalk. As a result, he has had to walk in the dirt on a curb because white women won't give him some space. And I'm going to quote him from the article. This is what he writes in the New York Times. In seven years of living and walking here, and here he means New York City, I've found that most people walk courteously, but that white women, at least when I'm in their path, do not. Sometimes they're buried in their phones. Other times they're in pairs and groups and in conversation. But often they're looking ahead through me, if not quite at me. When white women are in my path, they almost always continue straight, forcing me to one side without changing their course. This happens several times a day and a couple times a week. White women force me off the sidewalk completely. And then he even says he's furious because they walk with stride and with broad shoulders and with bliss while they force him off the sidewalk. Now, I know it almost sounds laughable, and a lot of people were criticizing, and they were saying, they were saying, you know what, guy? It sounds like you're generalizing. You know, some other white women came out and said, look, I don't force black men in particular off the sidewalk. Maybe you need to get that checked out. So this was the article, guys. Before we open it up to conversation, well, before I go to Stanley, because I know he has a lot to say about that, I want to ask Alyssa in particular first, her reaction, because you were the one that brought this article to my attention. This article resonated so much with Alyssa that she's the reason why we're doing this as a segment. Alyssa, what was it about this article that got you to say we have to talk about right. this? I mean, listen, I just thought it was an interesting topic because we always say that we want to talk more about race and that we don't have enough conversations about race and racial interactions. And I just thought that this was so interesting. In fact, the one story you left out, the story that caught my attention, is the first one. A guy is at a Starbucks and he's waiting for his coffee and he hears the barista start yelling out, tall, black Marcus. And immediately he becomes offended. Like, oh my God, did he just say tall, black Marcus? And really what the barista was talking about was the size of the coffee was a tall and the type of coffee was a black coffee and the guy's name was Marcus. And so there was nothing inherently racist about this interaction. Um, But it was just the way that, you know, like, so I really thought that this was interesting because there are some things that surely sound racist, but are not at all racist, like a tall black coffee uh, for a guy named Marcus. And there are other things that may not seem racist, like white women maybe, you know, not paying attention to people on the sidewalk, um, that may actually be a form of microaggression, even if some people don't realize it. And, you know, we can get more into this later on. I know you wanted to go to Stanley, but I don't think, like, all white. Like, this is one of those things where there's going to be plenty of white women that say, "Well, I don't do that." Well, yeah, Jackie. of course, you know. Like, <laughs> he's not saying everybody, and like, this is a problem with overgeneralizations. But like, you know, like that's sort of why we have to have this conversation. Jackie, as a white woman, are you pushing black men off the sidewalk? Why only, only Stanley, <laughs> and only when it, he offends me, and okay, it's very it's deliberate. Um, so this is interesting. So I, I haven't read the article yet, um, but I did read an article earlier this year, and if you are like any man in my life, you have heard me talk about it a million times. Um, 
about a woman who experienced the exact same thing with men. I think she was a white woman, and I don't know that she... I think she was talking about white men, and she was noticing that men... She was, like, deferring to men and sort of, like, letting them walk by when they were crossing paths. And so she did an experiment where she was like, I'm just not going to move out of the way when a man is walking, like towards me on the sidewalk and see if he moves out of my way and she like counted like 50 times she like bumped into a man on the sidewalk because he wouldn't move out of the way so I think that's really interesting I hadn't read this this particular story yet so I look forward to like comparing the two but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in regards to like white men is that I've started noticing after I read that article that I would walk down the street and I would find myself either bowing my head or like right. moving <coughs> out of the way. And I like, that's not my style. And I talked to other women that I know who felt the same thing that, yeah, like, yeah, I am doing this behavior and I don't really know why. So I think this idea of microaggressions is super interesting in when we talk about racism, when we talk about sexism, when we talk about, you know, any kind of societal ill, um, because it is the sort of like reason that people say, oh, things are so much better these days. Right. You know, things racism isn't what it used to be. Sexism isn't what it used to be. But because you can't see it, you know, we talk a lot about gaslighting. Right. Like the, like playing a trick on you and your mind. So you think that like you're the one who's wrong, but really somebody's doing something, perpetrating something against you. I think with microaggressions, they're much harder to prove that they're real. And so you just feel like. Mm-hmm you're wrong, you're crazy, for lack of a better word, you know, like there's something wrong with you and really it is something that somebody's doing against you, but it's not so explicit and so it's much harder to prove. Stanley, back to the story about the white women. You're a black man, black man. Have white women pushed you off a sidewalk? So let me just say something real quick. I already apologize for it. Listen to my white devil (laughs) princess, all right? No, so so what you have to understand is like what white women represent for black men. So white women represent a lot of things for black men. For some black men's or Uncle Toms, they represent beauty and, and the ultimate perfection. For people who are hey, black Becky. men and have common sense, they represent another human being, but they also represent a threat to their safety, to their lives, to their freedom. So automatically, when even walking on a sidewalk with like coming in council with a white woman, you instantly, as a person of color, like, you're trying to make yourself smaller because you understand the implications of if you even seem to threaten that white woman. So as trying to make yourself smaller, as trying to make yourself seem non-threatening, when you experience a white women who seem to just kind of, like, bulldoze past you, it's a, like, and I've gone through this, it's like, what the hell? I, like, I showed you I was a friendly Negro, you, you're going to, like, just miss me even more? So when I read that article, when I read that specific story, I totally got it because, as, you know, one of the members of a big black man Twitter, I know what it's like to walk down the street particularly later in the evening, and a white woman's about to cross paths with you, and it's like, you know what? I don't want any shady stuff to happen. So you're trying to make yourself kind of like smaller and more like less threatening, and then they kind of like just dismiss you or push you. I've been pushed to the dirt. I've been pushed off the sidewalk. I've been blown past by white women. It's not that crazy to me. Well, you know what, Stanley? I'm so glad you said that because there was a black commentator who was completely against this article, and he said, first, he pointed out the irony about how uh, George, uh, how Greg Howard talks about how he like he loves and, and admires white women, especially the white women in his personal life. But then again, he's coming across like what the what this commentator says. He's coming across very anti-white because it seems like he's doing that to overcompensate to the black community um, that he's still down. No, he's not. It's not anti-white. What, I think what's happening with this particular writer is that he's like he's fetishizing white women, like a lot of black men do, unfortunately. And because they seem to be rejecting him now, he's 
he's becoming like frustrated and he's lashing out by turning it into, into something racial. So even though his particular argument might be flawed, I think the experience is legitimate. I go through it personally. I know other black men who do as well. Right, that's true. Yeah, but I think, I mean, so this is something interesting then. Like, I, like you talked about fetishizing these women, and I think that this is sort of like the kind of argument you hear from men just in general a lot about women. Like, oh, they didn't pay attention to me, and so I want to, like, retaliate against them, right? There's, like, that saying, like, what men fear most about women is being embarrassed by them, and what women fear most about men is being killed by them, right? And so I wonder how this, like, plays into that a little bit, like, the fear of like women embarrassing you and like not you know like he he starts off this essay it sounds like fetishizing these women and then you know is angry about their you know lack of acknowledgement towards him right. do I mean, Alyssa, be- quickly before we go to break Alyssa? um yeah i mean listen i i'll tell you this thing is if you pass me in the in this uh walking down the street in new york city i'm gonna bulldoze right past you i don't care whether you're black white hispanic asian or something else i'm just so into moving and getting where i'm going so i think there is some of that too like you know this is new york city people are really really into themselves um and there's a certain amount of just like rudeness that goes on out on the streets that you, said but like it's you know well no i mean i'm just saying in general i think people a lot of people in the city of all colors and all races are just in such a rush to get where they need to be going right like whether it's the next meeting the next party the next this that people are just so into themselves that they become so self-absorbed but i do think that there's still a very important racial aspect to it as you point out stanley this idea that you know black men constantly feel like and i'm talking from your perception from what you're saying like walking down the street and you know the fact that like there's this fear of somebody could make a complaint against you have you arrested like you are in a much more vulnerable position as a black man and those roots come historically from our roots of having slavery in this country and the way people were treated and the way that you know even during as you probably could speak about better than me during slave times people would have to be really really careful about who they associated with because you wouldn't want to be the person that got caught up with like the white woman right because that could mean that you'd get lynched so there's a lot of underpinning stuff going on there from Jim Crow from you know slavery yes. that we that we need to be addressing absolutely we're going to take a quick break when, when we come back we'll continue to explore Michael aggressions and was that racism what that means particularly for people of color and we are back on let your voice be heard on 90.3 fm whcr the voice of harlem this episode is about how jackie pushes black people off the streets <gasps> and messes Stanley. up the trains <laughs> well just to be you need to you need to stop no, just, just, just to be accurate yeah, just to be accurate. So we're talking about the New York Times um, essay that was published recently. It was titled, Was That Racist? And uh, uh, some people, uh, particularly people of color, they talked about these experiences that they had where they questioned, was that racist? And I wanted to say, we talked uh, in depth about George Howard, who talked about how, as a black man, he often feels snubbed by white women when walking in the street. He says, and he says more than likely what he feels is that because white women are taught to fear black men, they are are socially conditioned almost to not make eye contact and to see through these black men because in fear that if they would make eye contact, it would almost be inviting of danger. Jackie, quickly. I would say that that's true. I mean, like, and Alyssa brought up a great point that, like, there are deep roots in this country, especially between black men and white women. Of, uh, I mean, this is the same country that Emmett Till was 
brutally murdered for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Like this is the same country that we're living in and not that much longer after. Right. So um, but I also think that there is something to like, you know, there are like people in their own groups, like white women who would never consider like being with somebody outside of their own race. And so they wouldn't even look at somebody because they're like, oh, I wouldn't like date this person. So I'm not going to like they they can't even they even like over sexualize black men or they don't sexualize black men at all. Right. And so it's like if I'm not going to like even look at you in that way, then I'm not going to give you like attention. All right. Acknowledgement. Can I ask a question that's kind of off topic, but I think interesting. So Selena's giving me a face that says no. Yes. Her face still says no, so I'm going to ask the question anyway. Um, like, So do you think it's, it could be racist if you don't like someone of the opposite race? Ooh, that's, that's a real... I don't <laughs> think so, because I think that you're attracted to what you're attracted to, and I don't think you can really control that. I think that people are, like, attracted to certain things. But I do think that it's very easy to, like, fetishize other people. Like, you see that with, like... You see white men doing that with black women or Asian with Asian women, women definitely. Um, in this case, you see a black man fetishizing white women in this way. Like, but I don't think inherently, although probably. Jackie <laughs> like, just said yes and no. Like, Can I, 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 I just want to acknowledge I think that. that like, you're attracted to what you're attracted but, to. But so, I do think if you're like, I don't find black people attractive at all, like, that's kind of crazy. Like, no. you know what I mean? Like, if you're a white person, like, there are. I don't know. I think there are like objectively good looking people in this world that if you don't find attractive, I don't know. I mean, as a black woman, I feel stigmatized. Like I am stigmatized in society. Right. I think that absolutely if a certain race of people like white people who. White. Yes. Like just to just to be clear, I'm talking about white people like because black women are stigmatized and because white women and black women with Eurocentric features have been put on a pedestal historically in this country, it has socially conditioned almost every heterosexual man to think that black women who look black, who may even look like they uh, may be from the continent of Africa, uh, aren't attractive. And that's something that we've been dealing with. And there has been a lot of progression. But I still feel that I still get told you're pretty, you're pretty for a black girl. I still get asked, what am I mixed with? And I, I still get these microaggressions all the time. And it just goes to further affirm that this country does not see me as beautiful yeah i totally stand corrected i think that's a really great point that there are certain features that are like whiter lighter smaller features that we prioritize in our culture not just in the u.s but i think worldwide there you know you see like products on the market like lightning cream and like people seeking that like yeah right like so i think that's a really really great point it's like that's how deeply ingrained it is right it's in like the products that we buy and the way that we like think about what it means to be beautiful and yeah i think that's a great point selena absolutely so guys i want to switch gears really quickly because like stanley you don't act like a normal black person. You know that, right? Like, Stanley doesn't I, act like, like a normal person, hold period. On. Like, hold on. I, I get this? told, hold on. I, I never, you know, some people don't even see me as a black girl. Okay, and like, and like, Jackie, are you really white? Um, You know, you're, <laughs> Stanley, you're, you're white. pretty, you're pretty attractive for a dark skinned man. Um, Alyssa, seriously, you don't sound white. So the reason why, <laughs> like, so I'm saying all of these things, right? You're, you're, you're asking, 
why I'm saying all of these things. These are examples of microaggressions. I mentioned that earlier in the segment, microaggressions, because that is what this article, this New York Times article was really getting at, microaggressions. And again, these are subtle, stunning, automatic, sometimes nonverbal exchanges that are derogatory to certain marginal marginalized groups of people. And a lot of times people say, like, have those comments I just made, you've heard them before, right? Wait, I've yeah. heard I don't look Jewish, but which like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but seriously, you heard them before. Like, uh, Alyssa, what do you think about these comments I just made? I, I mean, listen, I think these are like part of like, you know, the way that like, I don't know how to express it. It's like, I think it's part of like the overall bigger picture of how we react with other people. Like, I'll give you a perfect example, because I was talking to one of my friends about this segment and about the fact that we were going to be talking about these things. And I was like, do you have any, I asked him, he's a white guy specifically, if he's ever been in the situation where he um, is afraid that he's going to be perceived as racist when he is in fact not. In fact, he's another civil rights attorney like I am. This was one of the questions that was raised by this article. Um, and he told me like that does happen from time to time when he's like meeting with clients and I find it happens with me. And like we're talking with the clients about real issues in terms of policing. And, you know, we'll say I'll say sometimes to a client like, you know, the client will be like, you know, I was targeted because I'm a person of color. And I'll be like, yeah, that's true. Like, there is statistical evidence to back that up. Like, and then you get concerned as an attorney when you're talking about race in policing like that, that you're going to be perceived as racist for just pointing out these true facts. And like, we, we don't want that to happen. But anyways, getting back to my friend, just very quickly, the story that he told me was actually him and a friend of his who was not his girlfriend went to a restaurant here in Harlem. His friend is a light skinned, uh, mixed race black girl she's got natural hair they sat down at the restaurant the waitress came over the waitress was uh, a black woman and the waitress was like giving them looks and snickering and like she perceived it as the fact that the waitress thought that this mixed woman was his girlfriend and was very annoyed that like this white man was dating um you know a mixed race woman with natural hair and so like you know it's interesting and that's part of the reason why we have to have these conversations you know because like we don't know what other people are thinking unless we talk to them about what their perceptions are and change those perceptions. Right. But at the same time, so I've been thinking a lot about like this group's dynamic, like the four of us in this room right now and how we talk about race and sexuality and gender with one another. And we do it very openly and freely because we know each other. Right. We're very close friends. We have these conversations every single week. Um, But to say like, you know, we need to like people need to educate themselves and they want to know more. And I think people are just naturally curious. So they ask questions to other people. But I don't know that it's appropriate to go up to somebody um, who is trans and ask them about their genitalia. Right. It's not appropriate to go up to a black woman when you're a white man and ask her about her hair. Right. Like there are questions that you don't know. Like it's not like people will go up to each other and just ask each other about the thing that makes them different off the bat and I think that that's racist and that's offensive to just go up to somebody that you don't know or know very little about and all you can see is that thing that makes them different from you and that's the first thing you want to know about them. So what's the difference between asking a question that's based on genuine curiosity about someone's ethnicity versus racialized microaggression? Like I get asked all the time, what am I mixed with? Is that a genuine curiosity about my ethnicity or is that a racialized microaggression, Stanley. That's absolutely a racialized microaggression because it implies that you can't possibly be purely black because you look good. And, like, which which the implications of that is that black is ugly. So whether you take it as that, it's definitely racialized. But 
you, you know, just talking about like you know what actually, if, if you feel a way, I think that it's it's legitimate to some extent, because a lot of times when we're having these conversations, particularly as people of color, and I want to use a personal story of mine, the power dynamics are in a way that like it's not so clear for you to be able to be openly offended or find it problematic because you do not have the ability, the access, or the cachet to react. So, for example, I worked in the city council a couple years ago. I was at a, at a meeting with um, this very popular reverend in East Flatbush. He was a white guy. We're there with a bunch of people. And, like, we're just having conversations. So I, I, I mentioned Maryland. As you guys know, I always talk about Maryland. And he goes, oh, great. Um, do you guys have any kids? I go, no, no. And he goes, well, you know, that's pretty good. You know, your people hate using condoms. <gasps> what? And there were a black reverend. people and white people in the room. And I remember I got really upset and I didn't do anything. You know why? Because the power dynamic was not there for me to do that. That was explicitly racist, though. And then when I mentioned it to the other black person when we were leaving, she was like, why are you so sensitive? <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, we have a comment. Alyssa wants to read that. Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We have uh, two comments, actually, from Shadley Love. And she says, not being attracted to an entire race is racist. And not being attracted to someone because of their race is absolutely racist. So uh, if you guys want to react to that. Well, well, before we do, because we do have to wrap up this segment, um, I did want to... I wanted to give some time to talk about other racialized experiences that we have. Stanley just gave a great example of something that was direct racism. But a lot of times this type of like racist interactions happen a little more subtle. Uh, for instance, I had a white coworker that always greeted me by calling her by calling me her homegirl and saying things like, what's up, Chica? Ooh, and I felt no. so uncomfortable. And Why I'm like, does she, I was <laughs> like, does she speak to everybody like this? No, that like, sounds racist to me. Like, like, like seriously. And but I was, that's a real thing that people experience, right? Is that they'll be spoken to in a way where it's like, not how that person addresses everybody else, right? But they're like, oh, this is like the language that I need to use to speak to you because you're black or you're Afro-Latina, right? Like, this is how I'm going to speak to you. White people like, don't know how close ones. the beatdowns they beat, <laughs> but some of the stuff they say, I'm telling, like, white people get it together because these hands Ooh. have not read Martin Luther King. Well, <laughs> well, hold on. Hold that though, because we do have to wrap it up. But before we do, so like the, the last question, I'm just throwing this out the panel is, we have we've gave a lot of examples of microaggressions that happen a lot of times in our own lives. I've even been a I, I can even admit that I've been a perpetrator of microaggressions uh, because of ignorance. Right. And, and because of a lack of, of not really understanding the impact that this has because it sends a message. Alyssa, what can and should we be doing to uh, can, to further progress conversations on race and sort of bring these gaps to a close? I mean, we have to have these conversations. So many people say, like I said earlier, so many people say we should talk about race, um, but then they don't have these conversations. Have these conversations with your friend. Well, number one, if you're white and you don't have any black friends, that's your first problem. Maybe you need to go out and find some black friends so that you have some people that you can actually talk to. Um, And, you know, vice versa. That works both ways. Um, But then once you're within your group, like here, when we're not on the air, me and Selena and Jackie and Stanley, we have conversations all the time about racial issues. And we will be very frank with each other. Um, not in a racist way, but we will be frank with each other. If Stanley has a question for me or I, if I have, a Stan, I have a question for Stanley, we talk about it. Or if there's a scenario that came up and we think that it's worth discussing whether or not that situation is racist, um, we talk about it. And that's the only way that we're going to do this. Um, just the last thing that I'll say is, you know, in terms of like 
being put in one of the things you asked about, like being put in an uncomfortable position as a white person where you don't know how to react. Like I literally had a client or actually I should say a potential client that I was meeting with one day asked me if I was Jewish. And I was like, yeah, I'm Jewish. And I was like, why? And they're like, oh, well, I like Jewish lawyers. And I was like, oh, okay, why is that? And he was like, well, because y'all the original N words. That's what he said to me. Like and like I didn't know how to react to that. Like, you know, like I, I mean, I was in this position where I was like, this is what one of this person was saying to me. And I just had this blank look on my face and just totally didn't even know what to say because it's like, you know, like and but like that's like part of this issue, which is like, you know, talking about uncomfortable. So what did I do? I came to Stanley and I asked Stanley, like, how do I react to something like that? Right. And then Stanley and I had a conversation about it. And that's why I bring it up, because that's the kind of conversations you have to have with people in order to advance this issue forward, because we have to have frank conversations with each other. Um, We have to bring this conversation to a close. But before we do, I'll just end by saying this. Before you walk up to a person who happens to look Asian or appear Latino and you ask them where they're from or you think you're giving them a compliment by complimenting how they speak English well or saying that or telling a black person that they sound really articulate, stop. Stop right there because the message that you are perpetrating in that moment is that you're not American. You are foreign. And what I see you for is I see you at as being different, as being other, and I'm the norm. And I think that if we look at things from that other perspective and realize, first off, we're all humans. We're all human beings, and we connect with each other on a humanity level, on a human person-to-person level, then that can that's a part of the solution in negating microaggressions, racism, and just perpetrating and being part of the problem. Yes, you can be curious about where somebody's from or how many languages they speak, but I mean, do you walk up to white men and say things like that? No. So just treat the other like they're one of you, like they're family members. And I think that if we can get past skin color and accents, then we'll be in a much better place. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are kicking off the Dreamer and Doer series right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. <laughs> 